Morning, church. I want to share something with you that you've got God's word on. We really can win the war on worry. We really can win the war on worry. With the Spirit's help, we really can put a bad case of the frets, as my nanny used to call them, in the past. If you're visiting with us this morning, you've walked in on a series of lessons I'm calling Peace Talks. And they're framed from a text in Philippians chapter 4 that probably you're familiar with, even though you're not familiar with this series. And in this text, Paul unloads, he shares, he gives us a prescription for anxiety. Because here's what I hope happens in the next couple of weeks. That you truly believe, that you truly believe God's writing a new chapter in your life. Where anxiety steadily diminishes and peace steadily increases. Now, we've looked at these next couple of verses together, both in the Scripture, but primarily here in this particular context, we said them together. And I'm going to ask you to do it one more time. You ready? Here we go. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we want those to be more than words. We are, are trying to believe that, that in that truth lies a key that unlocks uh, some of the prisons that we have either been placed in or we've put ourselves in. You know the anxiety, you know the stress, you know the worry that we live with. And uh, we'd like to be free from that. We realize that anxiety is not something we're ever going to be completely free from. This world uh, has some terrible things going on in it that cause us to be anxious. But we're hearing that you're not, you're not wanting anybody to be dominated, ruled by anxiety. And so we're asking that would you please help us be an oasis for that in our community. The Western Hills Baptist Church would like to be that too. I don't even know if they know about the Peace Talks series, but I do know this. They want to know the Prince of Peace. And they want to be a people of peace just like us. And so would you need our hearts together in this endeavor? Would you truly help us to be a community, a community of churches that no matter where you go, someone who is far from God can finally meet God and experience the peace that passes understanding, that transcends all difficulty. We're trusting you. We're believing in you that this can be true. Please help us in Jesus' name and everyone said. I want to invite you to peek in with me at a conversation that took place in Paris, France in 1954. Elie Wiesel is a correspondent for a Jewish newspaper. A decade earlier, he was a prisoner in a Jewish concentration camp. A decade later, he would be known as the author of Night. Some of you have read this book. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning account of the Holocaust. Eventually, 
Ely is going to be awarded the Congressional Medal of Achievement and the Nobel Peace Prize for his great work. No author, male or female, has ever been awarded that in all of their lifetimes to get all three of those, the Nobel Peace Prize, the Medal of Achievement, and the Pulitzer Prize. No one's ever done that. Which is why, for the moment, I'd like to ask you to be a fly on the wall. When Ely Vessel is a 26-year-old unknown newspaper correspondent, he's about to interview the French author, Francis Mariac, who is a devout Christian. Mariac is France's most recent Nobel Prize winner, and he's also an expert on French political life. Well, Vessel shows up at Mariac's apartment one night, nervous and chain-smoking, his emotions are still frayed from the German horror that he has endured. His comfort as a writer is still a little bit raw. But the older Moriac tries to put him at ease and invites him in. The two sit in a small room. And before Wiesel can ask a question, Moriac, a staunch Roman Catholic, begins to speak about his favorite subject, Jesus. And when he does, Wiesel grows a little uneasy. Because the name of Jesus is a pressed thumb on his infected wounds. See, Wiesel tries to reroute the conversation, but can't. It is as though everything in creation with Moriac leads back to Jesus. Jerusalem? Why, that's where Jesus ministered. The Old Testament? Because Jesus is now the new covenant. He's what's enriched the old. Marek turns every topic that they talk about back towards the Messiah, and this absolutely angers Wiesel. Christian anti-Semitism he grew up with, the layers of grief from Auschwitz and Buchenwald, all of that boils over in a moment, and he puts his pen down, shuts his notebook, and stands up, and he says, Sir, Marek is still seated. He says, Sir, you speak of Christ. You're Christians, you love him, the passion of Christ, you, you love it, the agony of Christ, the death of Christ. In your religion, that's all you speak of is this Christ. Well, I want you to know that ten years ago, not very far from here, I knew Jewish children, every one of them, who suffered a thousand times more, six million times more than this Christ of yours. And we don't speak about them. Can you understand that, sir? We don't speak about them. Well, Mariak was stunned. Wiesel turned and marched out the door, and Mariak sat there in shock with his woolen blanket still wrapped around him. And as the young reporter is frantically pressing the elevator butter out in the hall, button out in the hall, Mariak appears and he says, Wiesel, please, Ellie, come. Please. And said, Wiesel agrees, and the two sit on the sofa. And at this point, Mariak begins to weep. Doesn't say another word. Tears just start coming down his cheeks. Wiesel starts to apologize, and Mark says, No, I will have none of that. Instead, he urges his young friend to talk. I want to hear about it. I want to hear about the camps. I want to hear about the trains and the deaths. So Wiesel talks. And after a long while, Mariak asks Wiesel, why haven't you put this on paper? 
And Wiesel says, because the pain is too severe. I've made a vow of silence. Mariak listened to that and then he said, it's time to break it. It's time for you to speak. It's time for the world to know what you've told me. That evening changed both of those men. This drama that I've just unfolded for you between these two became a soil for a lifelong friendship that grew. They corresponded often until Mariak's death in 1970. And at his funeral, Wiesel said, I owe Francis Mariak my entire career. It was to Mariak that Wiesel sent the very first manuscript of The Night. I wonder, what if Mariak had let Wiesel walk away in a huff? What would anybody been upset with him about? How could anybody have blamed him for that? I know he was cut by the sharp words of Esau, and it would have been within his right to become a little impatient with this angry young man and maybe even been glad to be rid of him, but he wasn't, and he didn't. He did react decisively. He did react quickly and level-headedly and lovingly. And because he did, a heart began to heal. Now you may be saying, Jimmy, why would you tell us this story? I'm likely never to have a key conversation with someone whose words will educate millions. No. But you will have conversations with your children and your friends and your co-workers and your Christian brothers and sisters who will influence countless others. You may not ever experience the acrid words of a Holocaust survivor But I can guarantee you this, in your lifetime, you will be on the receiving end of acrid words from someone who's been abused as a child, who's been raped, who's experienced a divorce, who has been unjustly let go from a job, someone who's been bankrupt because of somebody else's thievery or mistakes. And in that moment, I promise you, your gentleness and how you respond your patience with this person, your tolerance with this person, your graciousness with this person may be the hinge for them as well as for you. Maintaining your cool in that moment may not help someone win a Pulitzer Prize later, but it may help them in the heat of battle over in Afghanistan to save their platoon because they were able to act level-headed because of a moment back in history when you were level-headed with them. It may help someone who is about to be terminated to not be terminated because of your being able to receive those words and return patience and grace with those words and calmness with those words, and they won't be. Or someone who's about to lose a scholarship or someone who's about to lose a marriage and how you handle those heated words, those heated actions can change everything. I wonder how many catastrophes have been averted because some unsung hero somewhere was able to keep their calm while those around them lost theirs. The Apostle Paul has a phrase for this, choice of action. And you heard me say, this choice of action. It's in Philippians chapter 4. You just read it a few moments ago. It's part of this prescription for peace in our lives. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. 
The RSV says, let all men know your forbearance. The NSV says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. I like how the Amplified Bible says this. Let your gentle spirit, that, that graciousness in you, that unselfishness in you, that mercy, that tolerance, that patience, let all of that that's within you, you Christian brother or sister, let it be known to all people. Paul's encouraging me and he's encouraging you this, this idea that we can be calm in, in a time, in a, in a moment when there's nothing but chaos. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying as best I can to to deliver this, and I'm just telling you, it's, just, it's so unbelievable that we could, knowing who we are, that it's hard for me to say, God, you really mean this? And he keeps nudging me, yes, I do. That we can be that calm in the midst of such incredible chaos because of Christ in us. The Greek word that Paul uses here literally means level-headedness. And I know some of you are thinking, you can define it however you want to, Jimmy. Patience, tolerance, gentleness, level-headedness. I don't have any. I don't. And I just want to say, without Christ, God doesn't expect you to. He doesn't. But with Christ, He does. With Christ, there is hope, as Ricky prayed at the very beginning. Hope that truly I don't have to be this person who flies off the handle in just a moment. Who, who just is this barrage of spew in a heartbeat, who, who loses his control or her control in just a moment's notice. Because not only have I been shown mercy and graciousness and tolerance and patience by Jesus himself, here's the, the bigger promise of Scripture. It's one thing for God to just love me in spite of me. It's another thing for him to want to move inside me. And that's the, the belief of all beliefs. He's trying to get this new covenant church to believe, I am not just with you, I'm in you. And because of that, patience is in you, and gentleness is in you, and joy is in you, and kindness is in you, and goodness is in you. Not because of you, but because of me. Believe it, friend, Paul says. And he says, any Christian who makes the rejoice choice, and any Christian who chooses a patient, peaceful perspective, say that three times fast, can make a difference in this world. And that will make a difference in your life. We notice a person, don't we, who is contagiously calm. We love the person who in the football game, in the midst of a, of a lot of stuff going on, pulls everybody together and says, all right, we're okay. It's going to be good. We love it when that happens at home, when the house gets a little bit tense and and. Someone in there, maybe it's not a specific action, but, but with their words and their actions begins to pull us together and say, it's going to be okay. Ship's not going down. We love it when that person, whoever you're thinking of right now, settles the family down or the company down or the church down. It, it's just amazing to watch someone not lose their head when everybody else is losing theirs. But where in the world does a spirit like that come from? God would never call you to something this big without giving you an idea about where it comes from. Here it goes. You ready? Jesus himself is the one who gives us a clue. He once tells a parable about a king who decides to settle his accounts with his debtors. And his bookkeeper discovers a fellow who owes not just hundreds, not just thousands, but a couple of mil. 
And the king decides to have the man and his wife and his kids sold to pay the debt. Well, as you can imagine, if that were you, and it was within you to be able to do this, you would do what he did. About to lose everything, Jesus says he fell on his knees saying, Oh, sir, be patient with me. He's begging here. Listen, I'll pay back everything if you'll just be patient with me. And then the servant's master took pity on him. And he canceled the debt and let him go. Interesting word that's in that story there. Patience. Rather than ask for him to please to just forgive me of my debt, he says, would you just give me some time? Would you just bear with me a little bit? Would you, would you just be patient with me? And I'll pay you back everything that I owe. I promise. And the king says, no. Because I'm wiping the debt clean. He knows there's no way in the world this man could ever pay this debt off. And out of the graciousness of who he is, he says, no. Debt cleaned. Now, if he would have just given the guy some time, we would call that mercy. That would be kindness. I mean, he promised he would pay on this day, he would pay this amount, and he's not paying it. So if I were to extend that, I'm being kind, I'm being merciful. Now, to forgive it, that's beyond kindness. That's, beyond, that's grace. Totally undeserved, totally unwarranted, kindness above all kindness, compassion above all compassion. And the crowd listening to this story up to this point says, nobody does that. And then the story goes south. This freshly forgiven fellow makes a beeline from the courthouse to the suburbs. And there he searches out a guy who owes him money. And Jesus continues with this story, but when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. And he grabbed him by the throat and he demanded payment. And his fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little bit more time, be patient with me, please, and I will repay this debt. And you know how the story goes. All of a sudden, the guy who's got the guy's throat, he says, oh, what am I doing? Are you kidding me? I just came from getting forgiven millions of dollars and you owe me a couple of grand, dude. Forget it. Forget it. Come on, give me, give me a hug. Go grab the wife. We're going to Hobby's Barbecue. We're going to dine tonight, dude. We wish that's what the story said, right? We really do, though. The crowd says that that's what should have happened. Jesus says his creditor couldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt was paid in full. I hate those words. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Now the crowd would say, yep, I'd have done that. People do that all the time. The king was furious. Absolutely upside down mad, as well he should be. When the word gets back to him, he asks for the man to be brought before him, and he says, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I've had mercy on you? 
And then the angry king sent the man away to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Of all the parables Jesus tells, this is the easiest one for us to understand. And it's the hardest one to practice. Amen? The king's patience made no difference to this fellow. To this indebted servant, his act of grace meant nothing more than a warning from a traffic cop. A dodged bullet, a get-out-of-jail-free card. He is not stunned to the core by the king's extraordinary grace because he was simply relieved he wasn't punished. He was given patience, but he gave none. Which makes me wonder if he was actually grateful for the gift that he ever received. And I just want to say this morning on behalf of myself and all of us, if you find patience hard to give most of the time, you might want to ask the same question. Because Jesus is asking it. How much of a real impact has God's patience and grace made on you? He would make that more personal, though, if Jesus was asking, how much has my grace and my patience made an impact in your life? Really? Remember when the king calls the guy back, he asks him a similar question. And then when he's done, it says the angry king sent the man to prison until he had paid every penny. Wow. Am I glad this is just a parable and not real? It's a good thing that God doesn't imprison people because they're impatient. Don't be so quick to think he doesn't. Not for a minute. Self-absorption and ingratitude make for very thick walls and lonely jails that are full, listen to me, of anxiety and worry, fear. Impatience still imprisons people's souls. And because of it, and because of God's great love for us, and because he doesn't want to stand for that, <laughs> God says, I just don't want to ask you to be patient. I just don't want to ask you to be tolerant. I just don't want to ask you to be graceful. I'm going to be that in your life. I'm going to shower you with it. I'm going to continuously be patient with you, continuously be tolerant, continuously be gracious. That's what I'm going to do first. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul's reminding the church there at Rome that maybe has forgotten this because some Jewish Christians there are getting a little bit up to you about the Gentile Christians there and they think they're a little bit better and he's trying as best as he can to say, listen, nobody gets this grace unless God gives it. Level playing field at the foot of this cross. Level. We're all bankrupt sinners in need of his grace. And he says in 2 and verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of this kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, to change how you act towards your wife and children and your employers and your brothers and sisters in Christ. He doesn't just give you this grace just because it's good for you. He, he wants it to change the world through you. In James, Jesus' brother will wrap up his little book and the first chapter by saying, would you let God's patience have its perfect work in you that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Really? It could have that much of an impact on my life if I received it, if I welcomed it? Yes, it can. Jesus says receiving patience and welcoming His patience and rejoicing in His patience and celebrating His patience will help change me, will help change this intolerant, ungraceful heart. If you'll add to that, not just that God has graced you, this knowledge that you're not alone. Here's how Paul writes this in Philippians 4, verse 5. Let your gentleness be made evident to all. You can because God's graced you. He's filled you up with it by remembering that the Lord's near. Two things Paul had in his heart, had in his belief system that absolutely prepared him to deal with any hostile person or any hostile situation that came his way. One was, I have been so graced by God. And the other is, is he's right here with me. Right here with me and in control. I have been so graced by God and I'm never alone. Two huge truths that Paul could take even into a jail cell and write the words, listen folks, I'm asking you to rejoice in the Lord, in the Lord always. I'll say it again, I'm asking you to rejoice. I'm asking you to choose to make your gentleness, your graciousness, your tolerance, your patience evident to everybody. I don't do that very well. Sometimes I forget how graced I've been. Sometimes I forget how patient God is being at this very moment with me. It's easy sometimes when you get into the, the throes of bankruptcy. It's easy when you're in the middle of a divorce. It's easy when you're in the middle of, of trying to rehab a drug addiction that, that really your partner helped get you into. It's easy to fill in the blank with all the stuff that just feels like I've got this thing to deal with and I have to deal with it by myself. That's what happens when problems come to most of us. We equate problems in my life with the absence of God. Don't we? The presence of problems has usually been translated as the absence of God. And God's trying through this book here to educate and try to encourage everyone. That's not true. That's a lie that Satan wants you to believe. It's not true. As a matter of fact, he'll say, and James, I'm going to use problems. I'm going to use difficulties in your life to grow you up. Look at my own son. Was he problem free? No way. He went to a cross for you and I used that and I'm going to use your cross if you'll get on one every single day so I can use you in the same way to bridge the gap with people who are far from me. And you know what most of those people need? A little patience. A little kindness, a little tolerance. And for us to remember, we've received it. And the one who gave it to us is right here. Right here. He's near me. So sometimes I think I'm in it by myself. I can't empathize, empathize. I can't emphasize enough how much this matters. It's because Paul wants me to emphasize it, but I just... God's beginning to change me a little bit, being in this series of lessons. He's taking me down a path I haven't been down in a while, quite in this in-depth understanding again of how much He's lavished His grace upon me and how close He is in every moment of my life. And Him knowing that we would forget that pretty quickly because of how difficult this world is, He says, don't y'all stop getting together. We used to use this as a hammer in the church to get you to come to church now. I really don't care that you come to church anymore. I really don't. 
I, I like seeing you here. What I'm hoping you come for is that you want to be in this mission to receive this grace and then give it away. If you don't, go fishing. Honestly, Jesus said that. Go fishing. Go fit, go bowling. Go, go play pinochle. Go, go buy some clothes at the rim. But he says, you know, if you've received this grace, oh, it's just too good to not want to share it. And the way that you know that you've received it is that you're giving it. And then what Jesus was meaning in that parable of the man who'd been forgiven millions. That's why God talks so much about his presence in Scripture. We're going to go through this real quick and then we're going to wrap this up. In the very beginning of Genesis, he says, okay, I want you to understand what perfection looks like. It means me being able to walk just among you like a friend. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, sins come into the world. Man started going his own way, thinking that he made a better sovereign than God did, and it's just gotten messy. And all of a sudden he says, okay, I'm going to start over with a, with a people that I can call my own, that I'm just going to pour myself into, and they're going to be this light of the world. And so I'm going to start with this guy, Abram. 15 and verse 1, he says, Abram, I'm going to be your shield in this world. And your reward with me is going to be great. One of his sons, the first son, gets into some trouble. And God comes to him and he says, look, I, like I told your father, you don't have to be afraid, I'm with you. Joshua, he's about to enter the promised land. There's some giant problems in that promised land. And he says, I want you to understand something, son. I've commanded you, commanded you to be strong and brave. Don't ever be afraid or discouraged. I am the Lord your God and I will be there wherever you go, Joshua. Over and over we see in this entire incredible story of God and, and what he wants to do in this world with his love and his mercy and his grace keep pointing us back to the fact, I'm with you. Right there in the stable of Bethlehem. We're going to call him Jesus, Josh. Joseph says. Now I will nickname him Emmanuel. God with us. And then before his crucifixion, he says, i got to leave and you're not going to understand this, but i got to leave so that the Holy Spirit can come. And he's better than, than, than me just walking with you. Listen, he's going to come and be in you. That's why i got to go. You don't understand the timing of it, how it all works, but just know this, guys, that when I go, I'm not going to leave you alone. I will send the comforter to you. I will send the one who is the power of powers within you. Central to Scripture is this continuous theme. You will never, never be where God is not. Never. And I just want to stop for a minute, and we don't have the time to meditate on it, but I wish we could. Would you just receive that? You will never, ever be where God is not. No matter where I go, no matter how frightening the termination might be, or the hospital room, how dark it might be, or the bed and how empty it might be, or my bank account and how empty it might be, God says, I am there with you. Two of my favorite scriptures that I carry with me, Psalms 118 and verse 6, the Lord is with me and I will not be afraid. What in the world can a man do to me? <laughs> and the other is Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, if God is for us, who in the world could be against us? That's how I'm trying to hang on to this truth that God is with me. Not only has he graced me, but he's with me. God knew this would be a game changer for us and so he asked us to come together every week so that we would remember with him. Truths like this, you have been inundated this week. You know it. 
with truths from this world and lies from this world. And God says, can I just have a little bit of time that you gather with other believers who said yes to me and you remember I'm with you. Would you remember that I have so graced you and empowered you with the Spirit that you could do the same thing with others? You can. Now, because He's God, I don't think He would ever ask us to do something that He wouldn't empower us to do. And so I thought, how could I wrap this up in a way that people would remember this? And I don't know if it will be as effective as Josh's pot. That was pretty cool. Right? And i got to confess, when I saw how black it was, I thought, yep, rumor's true, Josh has been smoking pot. <laughs> I told you I needed grace. So, but I thought about this, so i got a buddy to help me with this. Come up here, Anderson, would you? Give a hand to Anderson Arns. Okay, Anderson, before we uh, got started this morning, I gave you an envelope. Can you tell everybody what's in it? $500. Do you know that's yours? Kind of. Kind of. You're thinking this is probably just a picture story, right? Yes. You're a smart man. But I ask you to think about something. If that money was yours, if I, if I gave that to you, what could you buy with that that you couldn't have before I gave it to you? What's one big thing? I mean, if I could get this, I would buy this with it. Vacation. Where would you go? Hawaii. Hawaii! Good choice. You're raising them well, Chad and Amy. Okay, so you'd go to, you'd go to, you'd go to Hawaii. Um, here's why I gave it to you, though. Is there somebody who needs that worse than you? Worse than you need a vacation. Brandon's going to have some surgery. And he needs the money to be able to have that surgery. Would you mind giving that to him? Kind of. You would? Okay. Um, Let's pretend I didn't give you this. Would you get him the money? Do you have the money? Okay, but you'd probably try to get it, wouldn't you? I would never ask you to do that. Never. Unless I gave it to you first. Would you go get that to him, please? Brandon, that's it. You, no, you had him. You had him. Right there. Just just reach out. That's, yeah, that's the guy I pointed you to earlier. Right there. Zach, I'm sorry. I'm to say Zach, I'm sorry. Zane Brand. Zane Brand. Okay. You can sit down now. Now, give a hand for, for <laughs> lot of um, plates spinning in my head today. Um, I wouldn't. I would never ask this young man to give someone $500 unless I knew he had it. I wouldn't. God would never ask you to give patience and tolerance and grace to people that he knew you didn't have. And so this, this sermon is not for non-Christians. It's not. It's for Christians. That's all. It's all. Now, <clears throat> if you're worn out with anxiety, if you're worn out with being hot-headed, if you're worn out with being intolerant, I can point you to the person who will make you that way if you'll let him if you'll let Him loose in your life, if you will die to yourself and your agenda and you will allow His agenda. See, I gave Anderson an agenda. 
I had an agenda of this whole illustration this morning. So does God. He's got an agenda. And that's to save a world. And he would love for you to be in on it. He wants Anderson in on it. He wants his dad and his mom in on it. He wants anyone in. He wants Zane in on it. Not Brandon, but Zane. He wants you in on it. And he's not going to leave you without the tools to be able to do what he's asked you to do. And he's asking you right now, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'm telling you, Christians, you've got the chance to do it. Rejoice. And you can make another choice. You can let your gentleness, you can let your tolerance and your peace and your patience be evident to all. But you've got to remember, the Lord's right here. No, he's right here. He's near. And that'll help. And just trying to hang on to that is going to make a difference in this world like nobody would believe. And so, we want to invite you to come. And be a part of what we're a part of, this incredible family of God. We had to come first by confessing we're wretches. We're a mess. There's nothing that we could do to earn the patience and the gentleness and the tolerance. If you've got it to give, we're, we're, we're wide open. And we went back there to a place where the kids were enjoying being around a few moments ago. Welcome to um, KCC, Clark. <laughs> But back, that's not, that's not a kid's place. That's a place where adults go to die to themselves and say, would you please forgive me of all this stuff in my life? And he says, I'll be glad to because my son paid for your sin debt long ago at the cross. And if you want to get in on this, we're going to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, put you to death and raise you to walk in the newness of life so that you could be life in this world, not just enjoy it, but be life. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. And again, we say this, we believe, but would you help our unbelief? These are big promises. No wonder it took such a big gift. Please help us soak this in, but not just receive it, but just let that sponge be squeezed out this week. God, thank you for the reminder that you give us gifts. I just love Josh's illustration. That you give us gifts sometimes we don't, we don't really appreciate right up front. And we get, to, we, get to, we get to understand how that fits in our lives and works in our lives. And later it grows and grows. And we're just thankful that someone took the time to love on us with a pot. But then, God, you give us something we do understand. There's somebody I know you brought here today that right now is tired of this. They're tired of living on their own, on their terms, and they've just needed a pathway to get to you so that you could help them start living with your power, your strength, your grace, and your mercy. So please, nudge them, Father, to, to just finish that today. Thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you that you will never let go of us. We're going to celebrate that. And I just pray, Father, if you've got some other things you want to do through the power of the Spirit, that you push brothers and sisters who need who need to just confess, I've not been the patient, tolerant, giving person I could be. Would you please pray for me so that I could? Be the lifter of their faces this morning. I'd lift her to the cross, lift her to your grace and mercy and forgiveness because of the blood there. And would you empower us to leave here just an army, Father, an army full of your grace and mercy and goodness. For we ask us humbly in Christ's name and everyone said, Let's stand. Let's praise him, church.